listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's episode 8, Ohio vs. Organized Crime. And today we're going to be talking about the origins of the Mafia. Before Prohibition and Al Capone and the Five Families and all that stuff that we know from the movies and from books, there was the Black Hand Society. And in Ohio, in about 1908-1909, the first ever major trial and conviction of Italian organized crime members happened right here in the Buckeye State. We'll be looking at the book Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society, Simon & Schuster, a great book from 2018. We have both co-authors here. We have William Oldfield, who's the great-grandson of the Inspector Oldfield, Frank Oldfield from the title, and author and filmmaker Victoria Bruce. They both were kind enough to join us from their uh, home city, of Annapolis, Maryland. William is originally from Ohio, and Frank, uh, the inspector, lived in Athens, worked in Cincinnati and Columbus. But this groundbreaking case, really, there wasn't even agreed upon that there was Italian organized crime. But this case blew that open. We're so happy to have Bill and Vicki join us to talk about their book, Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society. Uh, really good stuff. And like we said, there's a link in the show notes. We implore you to go buy it because we're going to leave some parts out today uh, and you're going to have to go buy the book to get the rest of that story. But we thank them for joining us. Um, They both live in Annapolis, Maryland. Bill originally from Ohio. Uh, In show news, we uh, did the Land Grant Brewery, one of our favorite breweries. Uh, We did their podcast, Beers with the Brewers, and talked about Columbus brewing history and the history of Franklinton. Uh, where they are from, which is the original founding location here uh, of Columbus, was in the Franklinton area. And today we're drinking their their sports. It's a collaboration with our friends over at Seven Sun Brewing here in Columbus. Uh, it's a citrus cooler gose, one of those sour beers that I just love, and it's a collab uh, for the sports and jorts that they do with with uh, Land Grant and Seven Sun. Uh, it was in a three-on-three basketball tournament fundraiser that they hosted for one of uh, charities I'm on the board with, We Amplify Voices, and they collabed on this beer, and it's just excellent. We dry, I drank some of these when I was on their podcast. Again, go find Beers with the Brewers. Land Grant uh, Brewing Company has their own podcast, very popular. Uh, had a great time with those guys. Go to landgrantbrewing.com. Go visit their tap room. I just flew back from from Florida with Miss Ohio Be the World uh, and, and saw the uh, Land Grant Brewery tap room still rocking at the airport here in columbus and then of course their great tap uh tap house in franklinton uh is one of my favorite places to watch a game or get a happy hour drink so thanks again to to mark and walt and and kayla over there for having us on you can go find that anywhere you get your podcasts uh just go look for land grant and or beers with the brewers good stuff today we're going to be talking about the first successful trial of an organized italian crime ring I'm a Sicilian, and almost all of these men who were tried and or convicted were Sicilian as well. We'll talk about the history of Italian-Americans and Sicilians in the United States. Why, why do so many in the early years you know, become mafia members and start these crime families? We'll meet our guest's great-grandfather, Frank Oldfield. The groundbreaking investigation he leads as a United States Postal Inspector. And we'll talk about the trial of the 14 members of what was called the Society of the Banana. As we'll look at the beginning of the mob here in America. Speaking of the mob, you got to go see The Irishman, uh, the great new movie, uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. Um, it's out on Netflix now, just came out a couple weeks ago. Really good film. Uh, and this country has always had a fascination with Italian organized crime. And today we'll give you the origins of that fascination. This was 
the first time it was a really a huge story, a front page story, um, and we will follow that story with our guests Vicky Bruce and Bill Oldfield, the co-authors of the Simon and Schuster novel Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society, one of my favorite history books of the year, and was just so honored that they agreed to join us and talk some Ohio history. So without further ado, let's get down to it. It's episode eight, Ohio vs. Organized Crime. In 2018, Simon & Schuster published this great book we're talking about today, Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society. The story is over 100 years old, 1909-1910. Uh, it was a huge news story at the time, but since it's been forgotten. The book, uh, co-authored by William Oldfield and Vicki Bruce, uh, Vicki's an author and filmmaker, and Bill decided to tell the story of his great-grandfather, the United States Postal Inspector, who took down the, the first mafia crime ring uh, in the United States and happened here in Ohio. We asked Bill, you know, why did his family, why did he have to wait 110 years to tell this story? His great-grandpa took all the evidence, eight steamer trunks, he says, of evidence were taken back to his basement. Frank was, uh, the inspector Oldfield was based out of Athens, Ohio, worked in Columbus and, and Cincinnati. But we asked Bill, you know, why did it take so long? Um, fear and procrastination. Those are the two reasons <laughs> because of the, the hundred years. Um, our family came to Ohio uh, with our protagonist, with John Frank Oldfield, and they came in around 1901. And most of our family still lives, the older generation still live in Ohio. The younger ones are spread out across the United States, like I am. They started out in Athens, Ohio, after John Frank uh, Oldfield died. His wife kept them. Uh, they were all basically the the uh, investigative evidence and the trial evidence. Right. Um, uh, so actual the actual artifacts. And uh, over time, the collection got a little smaller and smaller because of basement flooding. Uh, things being lost. The Hawking River in Athens, Ohio, a lot of people are familiar with Ohio University. Um, that's exactly where they live. That river did destroy some of the, some of the uh, materials. And my grandfather, my namesake, was able to save some of those. It was in his house that that happened at the time. And they just passed down to my father and uh, then to me. And they were kept in our attic. But he was told you are never to talk about this. Right. I mean, Fear of God was put into William and his sister, and you know he'd hear snippets about it. But like literally, even when I met William, he was still had this fear. And maybe today that it's out, it's all out there, and we're not dead. That you know he's <laughs> feeling better about it. But it was very. I mean, you you hear that from your family your whole life that this is very something you're never going to talk about and very very dangerous. I'm a Sicilian American. Uh, my dad's side of the family coming over Ellis Island in the early 20th century. My mom's side of the family is colonial, kind of Pennsylvania area, um, really signers of the Constitution type of people. Um, but in the early 20th century, Italians and Sicilians are coming over at remarkable rates. You know, some 6 million come over from the 1880s to the 1920s, one of the largest uh, immigrations of any kind of European in our country's history, and they had it. They had it pretty rough. They started at the very bottom. You know, when we talk about what was going on in Italy at the time, why did so many come over? The country unifies uh, in in eighteen sixty, and it's they unify, and that includes Sicily, who had really been a pretty much ungovernable area for centuries, and they had really no allegiance to this newly united Italy, um, and so that's really the spark that sends so many to the United States. We talk with, with Bill and Vicky just about this Sicilian and Italian-American history uh, in the first years as they begin coming over on boats to Ellis Island. They unified, right? So they try to unify all these different, you know, sort of tribes, villages, and, and City-states, right? you want to call it self-governing yeah. provinces. Yeah. So I, I think just like you're seeing in, in global politics right now, that disruption 
causes a lot of the wealth to go in one direction and the poverty to go in another direction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're seeing it in Syria and, and everywhere else you have sort of a power grabs, right? All the way throughout Italy, you have, you know, people that they're, because they were on the wrong side of the political right. winners, you know, now their land is gone and they, they're starving and they have, they don't have money. And so that's why you have all this Im- immigration to the U.S. And that, and then following that, Sicily, um, if you want to go there, right, so yeah. Sicilian are like the bastard stepchildren of Italy. They have no sort of an alliance or allegiance to the the Rome, the center of power. They don't even think they're the same um, ethnicity. Right, right. Yeah. 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 And so they, then they start leaving too and following and, and they have this whole criminal mentality, a lot of them, and come over and follow and start harassing the Italians that were, that were now becoming prosperous here. It's a tradition, I'll tell you, because actually, um, if you go back to the Ottoman Empire, when the Turkish and well, let's look at Sicily. Sicily's had about five different groups right. of people yeah. living there, as well as the Latin people, the Italian, and so you get this great intermingling of cultures and genetics and traditions. So what happens is, is they they have this tradition also of mafia, of of putting together bands of men who are in sort of clubs, if you want to call it that, and work either as uh, in military or business, that sort of thing. It's very, very tight in Sicily and all over the island. And so those mafia eventually become rivals, you know, and so rivals for the business. And eventually that causes them to realize that uh, they are, their independence uh, is actually attacking or the, the establishment. So they're finding out that they're actually anti-establishment type people. They're very independent people. So they come to the United States and they see the law enforcement, you know, as and government as is really unimportant that they're above that. In fact, they see themselves with all the uh, industrial magnates of the late 1800s, early 1900s as the equals of these people, and allowed to get just as wealthy as the Rockefellers if they want to, you know. Yeah. So it's really neat characteristic of people from that island. It's an independence that I think comes from living on an island, actually. <laughs> you know, it really comes to that. You have to stand on your own two feet. Italian organized crime really gets its start in New Orleans. You know, we rewatched a great PBS three-part series, The Italian Americans, came out a few years ago. You can still find that online. Uh, some of our, you know, even our villains in this story got their start in New Orleans before coming to Ohio. Uh, and Italians were not well received. You know, a crime family develops among the Sicilians in New Orleans, really two different families. And they're fiercely combated by Chief Hennessy, Chief Dale Hennessy of the New Orleans police. And on October 15, 1890, this famous lawman, he's murdered. He's shot in the street on his way home. And as he's dying, he says that the Dagos shot me. Pandemonium ensues. Italians are being beat up. They're being arrested in, in large numbers. Uh, and a group of them were, were tried for the murder of Chief Hennessy. You know, we're talking about the first organized crime trial today, um, the first successful organized crime trial. This trial in New Orleans was not successful. They were acquitted. But that wasn't the end. The Italians and Americans really get off on the wrong foot, and it all starts in, in New Orleans. We talk with Vicki and Bill about the murder of Chief Hennessy general American population that had been here for a century did not differentiate between Sicilians and Italians. They were all the dirty Italians or, you know, so when the Sicilians were disruptive, um, it really had an effect on all the Italians, and, like you said, public perceptions. And so when Chief Hennessy was murdered by one of these two rival factions of Sicilian mafioso who had been become entrenched and really running like the cities and the docks in New Orleans. Um, you know, something I learned from this book was that that was really where the mafia, the Sicilian mafia took hold in the, you know, late 1890s um, or 1890s. And they, you know, the whole, um, it was such a big case. I think that after that, there was just a huge amount of like, law enforcement going after just any Italian on the street, a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, bias against Italian. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, by the way, each immigrant group that comes to the United States, if you, this is so such a great immigrant story, by the way. Um, no matter what, what they are, 
their wealthy come over to the United States first because they can afford to, and then their poor and their criminal element follow behind, right? And prey on their own kind, their wealthy kind first, and then, uh, of course, diversify and prey on anybody else as they get become more Americanized, right? <laughs> but they start out on their own kind, and like she said with, with Hennessy or New Orleans, it was he was already very prominent. He was a very outspoken, uh, not arrogant, but I would say definitely had a big public profile. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he'd walk down the center of their, of their dirt, of the dirty streets, you know, without, without a gun on his hip or anything else. And, uh, just to show that he was the boss basically as the chief of police, you know, and I think that, um, they, there was a, you know, there, like I said, the Sicilian mafia did not, value authority, except their own. On March 14th, 1891, about six months after Chief Hennessy's murder and the acquittal of those accused of that murder, a, a mob, a lynch mob of thousands of New Orleans residents set up shop outside the jail. They burst in and they take out 11 Italian Americans and they hang them to cheers in the streets. One of the largest mass lynchings in U.S. history. Italians are being rounded up all over the city, including Antonio Lima. Antonio Lima would be the father of Sam Lima and Sebastian Lima, two of the the leading members of the Black Hand Society we'll talk about today. But many of them move away from New Orleans to places like Ohio, and they begin their new lives as some of the first you know, Italian and Sicilian immigrants in, in these northern cities. In this amazing book we're talking about today, co-authored by our guests William Oldfield and, and Vicki Bruce. Uh, Vicki's an accomplished author, a filmmaker, um, and we asked, you know, how did she get drawn into this story? How did she begin writing Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society? Um, and it's really a chance meeting w with Bill at a coffee shop in their hometown of Annapolis. I was like hovering over me. I'm like busy at work on another project. And I'm like, oh, God, this guy wants to talk to me. <laughs> so I look up. He says, so are you a writer? I said, yeah, I'm a writer. And he said, um, I have this great book idea. And I said, okay. And usually I love to hear stories. So I like listening to ideas. And usually at the end of it, I always say, yeah, well, you should write that book then. Right, yeah. Try to get me to write it for them because it's a great story. Well, in this case, he starts to tell me, oh, my great grandfather, he was a post office inspector before the FBI. And he was responsible for the arrest and helping convict the first organized crime ring in America. It happened in Ohio. And... Uh, they all went to Leavenworth, and I'm like sitting here, like salivating, you know. Yeah, I've, got, I've got 12 years of research. I've got all the original trial evidence, and I still have it, and it's in a bunch of safety deposit boxes at the bank. If you want to see it, like right, <laughs> it's like crack, right? I'm just like, oh, uh, yeah. So, so at this point, I'm like trying not to play, show my cards, and I'm just like, um, yeah, that sounds really interesting. And I'm thinking, how can I convince this guy to let me write this book with him? United States Postal Inspectors are still around. You know, the service really started, formed by Ben Franklin, starts in 1775. You know, back in when Frank Oldfield was an inspector, you know, there was there's no FBI, there's no Homeland Security. Uh, the postal inspectors have this kind of nationwide jurisdiction, and anything to do with the mail, uh, anything at all, would be turned over to them. And Frank Oldfield, uh, our guest's great grandfather and the subject of this podcast, he was one of the Postal Inspection Services. He was one of their top agents. And Vicky tells a story in which Frank's kind of rough-and-tumble ways, you know, law enforcement was done uh, with a little bit harsher hand than it's done now. There was no Miranda or anything like that. Uh, but she talks about a, a really funny story from the book. He, he's doing an investigation. He's in New York City, and he gets into a fight with another a member, I think a district attorney's office. And it makes its way all the way to the pages of the New York Times. And this story is just so indicative of Frank Oldfield's style. 
So he was involved in one of the biggest internal investigations. So the, the post office inspectors also did internal investigations within the post office. And you can imagine this is the biggest sort of this is commerce, right? Everything goes throughout the mail. So there's so much money involved, like so much corruption going on. And, and this case had to do with some, I think it was some um, typewriters or, the, you know. The cashier uh, machines. The cashier. Yeah, yeah, registers, yeah. yeah. So millions, and they're buying these machines that don't even work, 10 to 12 per little office. You know, Oskaloosa, Iowa gets 16 cashier machines and they're like yeah, collecting dust. They have like one teller. So all of this comes. <laughs> back and has something to do with New York City um, and it was a state's attorney and um, Oldfield was investigating him and it wasn't going well because the guy wouldn't talk and he was obviously a political power player and he had a friend who was a congressman and so he's not talking he's not talking and he Oldfield tries to go in the hard way and just investigate and the guy won't say anything he throws him out and Oldfield waits in the lobby of the post office in New York City. <laughs> so the New York Times reported on this incident where, you know, Frank goes and attacks him as he comes out of the elevator. Men and women who happened to be in the east corridor of the post office at one o'clock yesterday afternoon were surprised to see a rather small sized man with black hair and a mustache and another rather small sized man with red hair and a mustache rolling about over the marble floor in angry embrace. Over the writhering antagonist towered a tall, distinguished-looking man with gray hair and mustache who waved his cane authoritatively and called upon the contestants to let go. <laughs> Half a dozen watchmen and other officials in the federal building were soon on the scene and pulled the fighters apart by main strength. Then it was learned that he of the red hair was Assistant United States District Attorney Ernst Ernest E. Baldwin and his antagonist was Post Office Inspector J.F. Oldfield of Cincinnati. We were talking to Bill, you know, about the writing of this book. One of the downsides of doing a book and all the requisite research on your, you know, a revered family member, you know, a hero, his great grandfather, is finding out sometimes, you know, they are, as Bill called his grand great grandpa, a flawed hero. You know, Bill tells the story of the only time. You know, Frank shot his gun when he was a sheriff in Maryland before he came to Ohio. Um, these kind of stories have been passed down for years, and sometimes the facts of those stories don't match the family lore. We talked to, to William about his great-grandpa as a flawed hero. Starting at around 7th grade, was at 12, 13 years old, uh, is really when I started hearing these stories in family uh, gatherings. Uh, and this is the lore you're talking about, the legend of the, of the relative. And of course, everything is uh, embellished. People forget the truth. I'll give you an example of one of them was a, when, when Frank was, for a short period of time, he was appointed by the governor to be sheriff of Howard County, Maryland. So what happens is, is that uh, Oldfield chases down a hostler for stealing a uh, harness. At least people said that was him. So of course, Oldfield has an, uh, a man driving his carriage in, uh, to track down this guy. Of course, Oldfield then says, the, the guy starts running, he turns, Oldfield shoots at him. Of course, Oldfield claims that the man was trying to shoot him. The guy did have a gun, but he never fired it. Well, when they did the inquest, the man was shot in the back. Well, my family story was completely different. Right. Is how that went down. Now, Oldfield was forgiven for that, but never fired his gun again in law enforcement for the rest of his life. Um, but you see how the family lore just, it was so disappointing. Yeah, but that is Vicky's fault. You're right. Yeah, it's absolutely her fault. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, truth hurts. It's ruined my family lore. It completely ruined. It. At least there's only one of our older relatives left that had to hear that. Around the turn of the century, Frank Oldfield is transferred after a stint with the postal inspectors in Chattanooga. He's transferred to Ohio. He goes to the Cincinnati office, and, and I'll tell you, he's happy to get out of the South. He works out of Cincinnati and Columbus. Uh, and even into some of the surrounding states. But he lives in Athens, Ohio, with his wife, Margaret Galena, and their kids. We asked Bill about, you know, Frank Oldfield, Inspector Oldfield's move to the Buckeye State. And if he's living in, in Athens, why is he working in, in Cincinnati and Columbus, you know, a couple hours away? So they, when Oldfield gets transferred in 1901 to Athens, Ohio, or Cincinnati, Ohio, which was the main domicile uh to open the door to the West. So it was a very important office because it ran all of Ohio in the, re in the region. But when you worked as a post office inspector, you were dealing with 
uh, time before Miranda rights, before, you know, uh, where there's kind of a little bit of rootin' tootin' shootin' going on, <laughs> you know, a little cowboy was still in everybody. And so you didn't want your family living close by. So the nearest to Cincinnati that would have some culture and social light was Ohio University, which had been opened in 1803. And so it was a fairly formal, they used to call it Little Harvard on the Hawking. And it had a great social scene, whatnot, so they, you know, so they move her there, and he goes and works, you know, chases bad guys in Kentucky and Indiana and Cincinnati and Columbus or whatever. But it gives her the chance to be that socialite and be involved in all the, I mean, you should see the house, it's still there, that they built on uh, North Congress Street. It is owned by two retired Ohio U professors today. It is magnificent. After a number of successful investigations, Frank Oldfield is transferred to Columbus in 1907, and he quickly enters the world of the Black Hand Society. On April 18, 1908, Salvatore Sierra, a fruit vendor, is killed at his fruit shop, the DeMar Fruit Shop in Bellefountain, Ohio. Bellefountain, small town located in, in northwest Ohio. Uh, he owned the shop with his nephew, and the local police department turns the case over to the United States Postal Inspectors because... Salvatore Sierra, the, the deceased uh, fruit vendor, fruit store owner, uh, had a couple of black hand letters in his pocket. You know, in Oldfield's investigation, he runs into a brick wall. No one's talking, including the, the victim's wife. You know, we talk about you know murder in, in Omerta, which is this kind of this law, this code of silence uh, for Sicilians and Italians. We talk about Oldfield, you know, begetting his investigations into the black hand and into organized crime, Italian organized crime. Right. So Frank had solved, like I, we talked about, this amazing internal investigation. He'd done bank robberies, all these great cases, but he had never been able to break into the Sicilian crime. But once he got this case where there was a murder in Bella, Fon Bella Fountain. Bella Fountain, yeah. Okay. Got this case because there were death threat letters in the pocket of the murder victim. And the, the cops, you know, they could never solve these cases in the Italian communities. No one would talk to them because of omerta, which was like the law of silence. Yeah. So even if this man had been shot right in front of his wife, which they did interview her, she would never say that she saw anyone. Mm -hmm. She would never tell them anything saw because nothing. she would be next. Right. I mean, this is just how it is. And so, um, you know, then, you know, on top of it, they, a lot of them didn't speak English. And here's Frank, this skinny, you know, um, Caucasian, pasty-looking guy, sunken cheek. I mean, he's so thin. You can see pictures of him in the book. And he's so well-dressed. And he's, you know, not very tall. And he, But he's just, I mean, he's nothing like an Italian, right? Mm. So he goes into this Italian community, and the, basically the doors just came shut on him. And, you know, Frank never gave up on anything. He's like a pit bull. So this whole year is going by, and he's trying to solve this murder, but no one will talk to him at all. Yeah, it goes cold. Was, yeah, the case is cold. He's still got the stuff, you know, and he's like, well, they had a suspect, which was the the uh, cousin or yeah, nephew. nephew. Yeah. Right. But it was just like, oh, man, there's, he knew there was so much more to it. And he knew with these letters that there was something out there. get too far down the road we've got to talk to you about what the black hand society is la mano nera it was called in italian and the black hand society had taken over ohio and they did it under everyone's nose preying on italians um and italians don't ever go to the police so people really don't know and these guys were ruthless i mean they would send letters from different parts of the country demanding money these black hand letters as they were called saying they kill you or blow up your business or kill your family if you don't pay him this much money, signed, you know, La Mano Nera, the black hand. They'd bomb your business. They'd bomb your house. You know, there's a Marchino's uh, bar, which was located in downtown Columbus, where a lot of these guys from this store used to hang out and play cards. One of their, you know, the payments one time that were light, just the weekly or monthly payment was light. 
and they blew up the bar with the bar owner and his family inside. They barely got out alive, the place they used to hang out. Uh, another story from the book, and you got to buy this book of Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society because they get their hands on the original letters. Frank's family had the evidence from the trial um, and, and all the research that Vicki was able to do as well, you know, such as the story of a reverend in Cincinnati. He sees a, a guy in the back, kind of, you know, olive skin, just fuming in the back during one of his sermons. This guy had been been talking about the Black Hand Society and the people that are extorting, you know, our Italian friends, and they must be stopped. Um, in the next week, this guy gets a package. He said, "We have your eyes on you, know, our eyes on you, and stop making these sermons, or you'll be sorry." Um, and someone from the church opens it up. There's a flash charge in there, burns the guy. It's a little explosion, burns his face and his hands. And like I said, the mess said, we'll have our eyes on you. And there's a human eye in this letter, in this box. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that they did. Um, you know, another guy who just decided to not pay in Columbus, he said, I, I'm not going to pay. He packed up his family, moved back to Palermo, Sicily. And a week after he gets there, there's another letter. People are turning up dead all over Columbus and Cincinnati and Cleveland. Uh, we talk with, with Bill just about the Black Hand Society. He reads us one of these letters sent to a bar owner in Cleveland. It goes back a long way. It's not, you know, where this Black Hand comes from. In Sicily, from hundreds of years ago, that they used to use these things to create fear, you know. And then so what happens is, is the Black Hand concept, I mean, it's where the word blackmail comes from. Uh... You know, so if you look at this book and some of this, these stories, a lot of these modern day uh, terms that we use in investigations were not, actually come from this era in the United States. Now, one of the letters was to a, um, a uh, man, on, uh, a saloon owner named Gaetano Di Camilli uh, in, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, on 89th Street. The original letter, um, I actually have that. I uh, don't have it with me, but I do have the photo of the original letter that was used as evidence. This is an actual trial evidence photo from 1909. And this was written in human blood. So that, number one, already scares people. If you receive a letter that is threatening, it's very serious, you know, to a, a typical business owner. So the translation that was used, and it's Government Exhibit 10 in the trial in January 1910. This is the actual exhibit. This is the actual paper. The, the letter itself says, D. Camilli. From one of your, from one of our secret spies, we have learned that you have informed the police contrary to our warning. Therefore, it is time to die, and on the first occasion, you will feel a bullet in your stomach, coward, just like you said. <laughs> you have willed it, and you will die like a dog. The terrible black hand. If I got this letter in 1909, I'd probably leave. I'd probably immediately sell my store and move my family back to Italy which some did. A lot of people did. They just said, heck with it. But eventually, in Columbus, Ohio in 1909, the Black Hand would pick on the wrong guy. They picked on John Amacon, Giovanni Amaconi. Uh, and Amacon had built a fruit-importing empire in Columbus. He's a millionaire, uh, Amacon and Sons. Uh, and the Black Hand in Ohio was run by another fruit distributor, this guy from Marion, Ohio, named Sam Lima. Salvatore Sam Lima, his brother Sebastian. They had agents uh, and Confederates all over the state, but they called themselves the Society of the Banana. And Lima and his crew, they target John Amicon and his brother Charlie. We asked Vicky about who was John Amicon, the man who would break Omerta and start the downfall of the Society of the Ban Banana and the Black Hand. Who is this guy and why is he so ballsy that he, you know, stood up to the mob when no one else would? And uh, so it basically told me his story. And what it was, was, you know, he was one of these uh, migrants that came when, you know, things were not good at home in Italy, lived in northern Italy, came over 14 years old with, I don't know, $14 or something in his pocket. And he came on, you know, a ship, obviously. And he arrived and... Uh, at that time, New York City was just overrun and the Italian neighborhoods were horrible and the work, the labor was always backbreaking and awful. So uh, he ended up in um, Chillicothe, yeah, Chilli which your Ohio versus the World podcast people will know Chillicothe is uh, 
uh, a very famous town for many other reasons, but we'll get into that history at another time. Tons of history in Ohio, isn't there? Yeah. And uh, the story is, you know, he bought a bag of nuts. He divided them in half and he sold two bags of nuts. And he literally started an empire that he ended up in Chillicothe for a few years with his brother, moved to Columbus and became the number one uh, fruit importer and distributor in America. This is a huge company called Amicon Brothers. And people listening to your podcast, I mean, there are a bunch of Amicons still in Ohio and people have contacted us that are relatives of him. And um, very cool. I know some Amicons here in Columbus as the secretary of the Columbus Italian Club, still a member. And we've got a couple of Amicons. I could see them, you know, being the kind of guys who would stand up to the stand up to the mob. Um, but Amicon has, gets a couple of sticks of dynamite placed on his porch. His wife finds him wrapped up in a newspaper. Uh, his brother, Charlie, is ready to just give in as he's under the same kind of pressure. And they, they each have like four kids. Uh, and men are watching him at the store in downtown Columbus. He goes to the federal building. He's had enough. He goes to the federal building there on 3rd and State Street downtown just by the State House. Uh, and he goes into the post office and he meets with Frank Oldfield. And the Black Hand Society is finally gets its first break. So he said Frank had been investigating that murder up in Bell Fountain of another fruit vendor. But now John Amicon's standing before him saying he's looking for Uncle Sama. He wants help. He's ready to talk. He's ready to stand up to these guys. And Frank Oldfield's ready for a fight. Oldfield is has an office on the second floor of the post office, which is basically behind the state house. It's now a uh, was Brickler. Beautiful. I think it's still Brickler and Eckler. Yeah, it's a great building. Uh, My mom used to work at Bricker. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Right. And uh, that was his, that was the federal building in the post office and the federal courthouse uh, back in the day. Oldfield had a second floor office there. Um, and so he's done the Sierra case, you know, 1908, that's just sort of sitting on the back burner. It's like Vicki did so much homework on that. Additionally, trying to see what really happened. And all of a sudden there's a point where Amicon who's right off of Naughton street. So, uh, now that would be by the, uh, the Hyatt yeah. area. Um, and that street is kind of gone. Everything that was originally there, that street is has been torn down and turned into something else. So he could walk from there with no problem uh, to the office of the of the federal man, the G-man. So there's a point where he finally gets so fed up, he brings in a couple of the letters, and he walks and throws them on Oldfield's desk after getting you know invited up, up to the office and says, I want to see Uncle Samma. Crumb walks him upstairs to Oldfield's desk, and then he drops him on there. Oldfield has this amazing old... Uh, uh, magnifying glass, looks at this stuff and his face lights up and all of a sudden he realizes, you know, this demure man that John Amicon looks at and goes, how's this guy going to do anything? Gets up and he's like, Eureka, you know, I've got evidence. I've got a guy now. John Amicon, he goes to the press and he speaks out you know, as a leader in the Italian-American community. He stands up to the black hand and he's saying things like, you know, if I find out who you are, I'll kill you. He was just the wrong guy to pick on and he was certain it was Sam Lima and his, his cohorts that were threatening him for money and threatening his family. Yeah, Amicon, though, you really have to understand, John, or Giovanni, you know, uh, he was very, very, very confident and was not afraid of these guys. He saw them as just dirt under his shoes. He really didn't care. I mean, they threatened him with death. He said, I'll kill you first. <laughs> I mean, he... He just didn't, you know, and I looked back at my grandfather, my Italian side, uh, Vincenzo Icone or, or Vincent um, in Youngstown, Ohio, and Boardman, he did the same thing. He stood up to these guys, and they finally get to a point where they're like, okay, fine, uh, we'll leave you alone. So it's really interesting, you know, that, she's, that she really brought out this character in John Amicon and really was able to find out so much more about him than I was able to find out originally. Like we said, Amicon's almost certain that his tormentor is Sam Lima and his brother. They're rival fruit vendors from Marion, Ohio. He's rumored to be part of a secret criminal society. And the Limas were a big deal in Marion. They actually didn't even extort people in Marion, their hometown. It's like they kept a really quiet profile there. But they extorted and scared and killed people all over the country and the region. 
we asked Vicky, you know, who was our villain, Sam Lima? Sam Lima is a fruit vendor. He's just an innocent guy. So I don't know why you're saying those bad things about him, Alec. <laughs> Uh, no, so so that was the cover, right? So a lot of Sicilians are actually in the fruit business at this point in time in the Midwest and and all you know all the way down coming from New Orleans and up the Mississippi. And so their cover is the Lima Fruit Store in Marion, Ohio. And somehow these poor fruit vendors, he and his brother Sebastian, are walking to the post office, which was a few blocks down couple blocks down and depositing like $900 a day and sending it back to Sicily to their mother. And <laughs> so, so, you know, yeah, there's something going on here. And John Amicon had seen Sam Lima and knew he was another fruit vendor because they all were connected. And he had told Frank that this was who he suspected. Like uh, William was saying, they felt they were above the law. In Marion, Ohio, they really didn't have to worry about anything because they were benefactors of probably the little league teams and, you know, the churches and, you know, every, the bankers loved them. So, you know, they weren't really worried about anything. So when, when Frank started his, his undercover investigation, it was really cool because, uh, you know, as you can read in the book, they had no idea. begins a full-blown undercover investigation of the Lima brothers, Sebastian and Sam. And we, Vicky and Bill kind of lay out in the book, it's amazing, the, you know, who does the black hand extortion, this letter game. This, you get a letter in the mail signed by Lamano Nera, the, the terrible black hand. Um, but how does that actually work? How does their extortion work? And how does Frank and the United States Postal Inspectors begin to crack their racket? The, the term undercover that you hear today, like undercover investigation. A cover is a, is a, was the old name for an envelope in the, postals, in the postal world. They called it a cover and instead of an envelope. Lima would put an envelope with a letter in it that was already pre-addressed, a letter as a blackmail letter, if you want to use that term, into another envelope right. addressed to one of his cohorts in crime in another city in the United States with a little note that just said, mail this at once. You know, And so the guy, it, that, that letter, in within a letter would get mailed to one of his cohorts, say in Buffalo or Chicago or Portland or Los Angeles, whatever. And the guy would, local guy would open up the envelope, pull out the new envelope that's pre-addressed, buy a stamp and mail that to the victim who could be back in Ohio or in Indiana or something. So Frank had an idea that this was going on and he went to Marion and he went to the postmaster in Marion and he basically, any post office inspector could go into any post office anywhere and say, I'm taking over. And so he basically did and he went into the back and he took over the guy's office and he said, okay, every time these Lima brothers come into this, this office to mail a letter anywhere, your clerk out there is going to take these little red stamps. We have a picture in the book. It's not red because they're black and white. But they're going to take these stamps and they're going to put a tiny red dot in the O. And later they put them in different parts of the stamp. But at that point, anytime the Limas were going to send a letter, they were now marked. Okay. So then Frank, they, he says, okay, and let us know where that. Now, in this, in this, this is true today and this was true then. Frank was not allowed to open any of these letters. Okay, because that's personal property, right? And so there was even a law back then that no no letter without a warrant could be, you know, opened up. So he's he's finding out, he's doing all of this intelligence gathering by asking other post offices, postal carriers, describe who got that letter, describe who they were, get the names. And so he starts collecting this. I mean, imagine his living room wall, yeah. right? At the time. <laughs> like he has so much data he's gathering because as William said, these guys were all over the place. San Francisco, Canada, we found out later, they're everywhere. So mm -hmm. he's got all these, these points of information and all of the post office inspectors and everyone's involved, right? So it's like the fact that he could keep this on the down low as long as he did was amazing. The home base of the Limas is Marion, Ohio, about 40 miles north of Columbus, You know, a city that in this time its population basically doubled to about 15,000 from 1898 to 1908. And their fruit store on North Main Street, you know, there's a meeting of all the regional players of the Society of the Banana, they called themselves, in March of 1909. And Frank and his gang are all over it. 
They occupy the second floor apartment across the street. They're eavesdropping, you know, through through next door. Uh, these guys from Cincinnati and Cleveland and Pittsburgh, Columbus, all over the state, they're staying overnight. Sam Alima is, is elected basically the new godfather of the Black Hand. You know, their letters to each other would say things like, they're all fruit vendors, you know, a carload of lemons is, is coming. Basically, that means, you know, a lot of cash. Uh, he's advised, you know, the what's-his-name has been advised to eat bananas, which means to pay the tribute and to pay what they're asking. Um, you know, there's all this different kind of stuff that, all things that would be found in the evidence, you know, and, and really for the whole nation to see at the trial. But when they write their own bylaws at this meeting for the Society of the Banana, uh, it's really funny stuff. But Vicky will actually read us, you know, a few of those. And they're pretty funny. Uh, also, though, they're, they're pretty serious rules. Right. So there's a meeting of all the mob bosses in the area. And Frank got wind of it as he was. Um, well, he had a, he had an informant, which we don't exactly know who it was. But um, so that night there, of this meeting in March of March 9th, 1909, is the day when the mafia, the first commission, you want to call it that, the first big meeting of all the bosses. Right. So one system. of the things that they do, and this was found later when Frank busted into the fruit stand or fruit store, uh, were the bylaws and regulations of the Society of the Bananas. Yes. Article one, the person who tries to reveal the secrets of the society will be punished with death. Article two, a member who offends one of his companions staining his honor will be punished according to article one. <laughs> now this goes on and on. There's 17, no, 16 articles. Okay. So all kinds of terrible things that can happen to you if you do the wrong thing. But the last one is my favorite. Article 16 says there can no, be no excuse for failures or penalties in conformity with the articles. However, there may be extenuating circumstances in case of drunkenness. And they're like, that's it. We're done. We did it. Yeah, pre-prohibition here, right? Sorry. Okay, if you drink too much, uh, we'll forgive you. you know, Frank makes his case to the prosecutors in Columbus, and he runs into really some, some ignorance and honestly racism about Italians. That's why this case is so groundbreaking, you know, that Frank's investigation. He has to get so much evidence because the prosecutors and people in general, they just don't believe that there's an Italian mafia. You know, obviously then called the Black Hand, but... People just don't believe that it's a real threat or that it's actually organized. And these guys were. Lima and the Society of the Banana had quite an operation, and they were making a ton of money. Um, so we talked to to our guests just about, you know, why didn't anyone believe that this was, you know, the first instance of, of organized crime? Frank was, because of his personality, um, he was very driven, uh, sometimes pushy. We'll just use that term, but maybe beyond pushy. Punchy. I, I, punchy. <laughs> punchy. I like that. He rubbed the wrong people the wrong way. So, and you know, you and just think of yourself in the workplace with someone like that, whether they're right or not. Sometimes they, you still don't want to have to deal with that. So he would was going to the postmaster uh, in uh, Columbus, uh, who was Harry Crum, who was is inspector in charge, they call it, of Cincinnati. Like I said, it's a really big regional office in the United States. This guy had a lot of power. His name was Abraham Holmes, like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Abraham Holmes was like, you, you know as well as I do, this this black hand stuff, these Italians, they're just uh, small bands of anarchists and bombers, whatever. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not organized. I don't know what you're talking about. So then Oldfield pushes it up and tries to go to the postmaster and to the, what they used to have, the, the uh, Department of Justice used to have a... Um, an attorney general specifically for the post office um, because it was so powerful back then. It was so important. And so he went to that person and he was basically laughed at on these letters going back and forth by each of these people as you're nuts. There's no such thing as the mafia. There's no such thing as organized crime. It's too, there's no sophistication in these people. They saw them really as lower level people, lower level intelligence even. I mean, let's be candid. It was uh, definitely an eth ethnic uh, difference going on in the United States. And they didn't even believe these people could be so sophisticated. So Oldfield then is able to piece together what comes down to it. It's the first interstate and international uh, syndicated crime ring discovered in the United States, let alone discovered, but, but prosecuted or indicted and some of them prosecuted. Yeah. And he really is a groundbreaker. There was really only four law enforcement officers of that era that uh, that really put together this stuff. And that was Fred, uh, 
Daniel Hennessy, the chief of police in New Orleans, uh, who really recognized what was going on. Francis DeMeo, the Pinkerton detectives, who was really famous. He was like the Serpico of the, of the time. Uh, then you have Frank Oldfield, uh, and you have Joe Petrosino, Giuseppe yeah. Petrosino from the city. And one other one, we'll just give him as an ancillary, and that was Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was the director of public safety of the city of New York. Finally, Frank Oldfield gets enough physical and testimonial evidence. That was his biggest problem was getting people besides John Amicon that would testify, that indictments are issued. They track down 14 members of the Society of the Banana. Sebastian Lima actually escapes, but all are tried on federal charges, conspiracy, through the mails. Uh, The papers are all over it. It's on the front page of dozens and dozens of newspapers almost every day. We won't get into the trial completely. we got to leave some of this stuff out because you need to buy this book. There's a link to Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society uh, in the show notes. You can get it on Audible. That's how I first listened to it uh, before I bought the book. Um, and, you know, it's Judge Taylor. The trial is in federal court. It's moved to Toledo, Ohio. Uh, and prosecutors and witnesses are being threatened. And the judge orders during the trial that no one who looks Mediterranean is going to be allowed in the courtroom. This would never fly today, but we ask our guest just about that rule no italians in the court yeah it was toledo and you know there were there were so many security reasons that they didn't want any you know there was just there was so much going on they had um so you have sam lima and his reach is broad they called themselves internally society of the bananas because they were all fruit vendors so it was kind of a funny tongue-in-cheek name outside they were called the black hand from the outside but so they were they had so much reach throughout the communities and they had so many people afraid of them that when they called out and they said y'all have to come to the courthouse and protest this and they had all kinds of you know things going on at one time there was a dagger inside the courthouse on frank's desk um threatening so so basically for security reasons i mean the judge didn't know i mean you know, obviously it's not politically correct today, but he was like, no one who looks Italian is getting to come into this courtroom. <laughs> this trial that takes place in federal court in Toledo, all 14 members are tried together. Yeah, I don't know if you'd see that today. And most had their own attorneys, but it's a sensational trial. John Amicon is the star witness. Frank Oldfield brings in these eight steamer trunks of evidence, and he's on the stand for a couple of days. There's still some doubt. Um, because you know they weren't able to get that many victims to testify thanks to you know Omerta, this code of silence. But we hear some of the things that are read to the jury, including a letter Sam Lima himself had written. You know Frank had these, all this evidence he'd done, all this investigation, uh, and some of this evidence, like we said, would be lost in the flooding in Athens over the decades. You know it was that single trunk that our guest Bill ended up with, and was the source for Vicky and the artifacts for all her research in this book. But we talk about, you know, this letter that was read at trial. Well, remember, by the way, it, it, the black the blackmail concept of it, can you imagine if you were a completely innocent Italian family and Lima's people or one of his, who knows, cohorts threatened you with, I'm going to kill your children if you don't go and try to kill John Frank or his other postal inspectors. I mean, they could actually use innocent Italians too. To because of extorting their families or threatening their families, so you never knew who was who was going to stick you in the back, you know. And I think that that had a lot to do with it back then. I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of fear because over in Sicily and Italy, there had been a couple cases where they had to keep these people in cages in the courtroom, you know, that were kind of contemporary with this one. So I think there was a lot of fear about how dangerous and scary these people were. I mean, they. Let's here. If you read a quote, I mean, by Sam Lima about how he feels about himself, it gives you an idea that you don't want to mess with these people, you know? They think yeah, of, this is another. This is, so this is Sam. It's actually him the, writing the president it himself. Of the Society of the Bananas, and uh, okay, this was a letter, and he said, "We have silently removed emperors, kings, and princes, and have been as fearless of apprehension as if we were the wind sighing in the trees at night." We revel in bloodshed, we smile at tears and pleadings, and our field of operation is bounded only by the universe. We scoff at the police, we push them aside as we would a child. 
like we said, you, you've got to read the book to learn more about the trial. There's really two trials almost. Uh, and, but all but three of these 14 are found guilty. The other three are, are given a, a retrial. And the first successful trial and conviction of an Italian organized crime ring is complete in 1910. You know, Al Capone is a kid. Prohibition still 10 years off. You know, the five families are still in their infancy. But in Ohio, where the, you know, this Black Hand Society was thriving, that's when it becomes the focus of the country. Uh, you know, the biggest sentence is Sam Lima gets the largest 16 years in Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Uh, his brother in absentia, a couple other guys, get 10 years. Like we said, three guys get new trials, and a number of other ones got two, four years each. Uh, but Frank Oldfield and the police were, were still very afraid that they would be broken out. Especially after this verdict, they developed this elaborate transportation plan right after the guilty verdicts. They go straight from the court to a train car that's not even at the station. It's like down the down the road. They go a different way than they normally do. We talked to Vicky and Bill, you know, about the Black Hand Society, the Society of the Banana, convicted members in their trip to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. This stuff is so out of a movie. You can't even believe it. Like this is a movie when you read it. Uh, you, it's, it's what's, what's so fun about it, mixing the newspaper or, you know, those, that, those people back then that were trying to sell newspapers, the colorfulness of it, you can see it and you can actually close your eyes and see this going on. Back then the railroads were everything. Of course, there were some cars, but not many. Can you imagine from the, from the city of Toledo all the way to Kansas, uh, to the military base on Kansas, Fort Leavenworth and the prison there, every single train switch absolutely lined up so you have one car and one engine take someone directly from toledo to kansas back then there were such a, were so many interwoven railroad tracks kind of like our highways and streets today that it would be hundreds of switches between toledo and kansas yet they were able to go direct route non-stop uh, what were they welded they welded, yeah, they, welded <laughs> no, I mean, the they welded them in the car Frank and uh, the the marshal the US marshals <laughs> but yeah. inside they had a chef and they had, were having dinner and they were you know some pasta I think suffering. they were probably really happy at the time so everybody that, was afraid they'd be broken out that the, the and they would have right they easily they yeah, so they went the they went in a different direction. They thought they were going back to jail. It was very well planned. And I mean, if you thought it was silly that they went through all these crazy precautions to to make sure that they weren't busted out, and you wonder, you know, why Frank's family would have worry for decades about this fear of reprisal after the trial. You know, Frank Oldfield was threatened during the trial, uh, and most importantly, after the trial, Judge Taylor turns up dead. He's had a benefit in Toledo, and he has a dessert. And he starts convulsing. He's poisoned, and he dies. Many believe he was poisoned. Um, you know, Bill talked to some of Judge Taylor's descendants, and they definitely, definitely think that he was killed. He was killed by the Black Hand. Even yeah. today, uh, there's, I mean, people I've talked to in Ohio that are descendants. I did meet one of Taylor. Oh, you did? And uh, they still, they have a different perspective on it than the, the newspapers, but with doubt, they are certain. Yeah. In their opinion, in their family lore, they're certain. Frank Oldfield would die in 1916. You know, William grew up in this family. He's from Ohio. He's a graduate from the Ohio State University. And, and we talk about you know how this story still played a role in his life, growing up in, in Lima, Ohio, and in Akron, Ohio, and growing up in Oldfield. My dad used to say that Lima was the retirement capital of the mob. And I didn't realize that, but in that era, uh, before I was born, 59, 60, 61, 62, all these super rich ex-mobsters had these estates and these beautiful mansions all over Lima, Ohio, and Marion, Ohio, and that sort of thing. Yeah, Bucyrus, I think, as well. Right, and people go, what? You know, you talk to people today, and they say, ah, oh, no, they're in New York and Chicago and whatever. No. That was the that was the because of the money in the Great Lakes in that era and the amount of money there. That's where they retired, and then they had their summer homes in the in Cuba, or eventually in Miami or in the you know the South or whatever. So my dad really really was nervous when he was transferred to Lima, Ohio, to work there, and then realized who was there. And he's like, God, there's some of the some of the descendants or the 
sons of the guys my grandfather put in prison are they're all around me in town here we got to move out of here yeah you know so he moves back to akron where you know and and we spent most of our life there in akron and guess what again i'm going to junior high and high school with some of the descendants of these these people my great-grandfather put in prison we talk with bill just you know like we said this was the first ring to be you know proven to exist prosecuted and convicted you know, it's extensive and elaborate network throughout the state. We asked Bill, you know, why was the Black Hand Society so big in Ohio, even though it's barely getting off the ground in, in other places in the United States? And this story takes place in big cities like Columbus and Cleveland and Cincinnati. But also we see people who are killed and threatened and operate out of cities like Bell Fountain and Marion, Denison, which is a small town in Tuscarora's County. What was it about Ohio that attracted the Black Hand? Ohio, uh, as we talked uh, separately, at the time was probably the wealthiest state in the country uh, because of the Great Lakes industry, you know, and so you had, and because of that, all those magnates and whatnot, um, there was a large amount of, it, of Italians and immigrant labor. So that brought a ton of money for the mafia to make in a city, in a state like that. I mean, eight presidents came from Ohio, so up to about very soon about that time and that showed you the power it had so the mafia came saw that opportunity but when they so so the trial you had a lot of people that were wealthy that were prominent that were afraid of these guys From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation, obviously, is Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society in 2018. Thanks again to our guests, Victoria Bruce and William Oldfield, the book, Inspector Oldfield and the Black Hand Society, just fantastic. You need to go get it. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, Simon & Schuster. You can find it uh, on Audible as well. Uh, we asked, you know, just kind of about their collaboration. We talked a lot about the writing process for this book during our interview. So much in that interview we, were, we had to edit out and unable to share for time concerns. But they wrote this book kind of as a team. You know, Vicky had written a couple of Nonfiction books uh, like Sellout. She has a couple of popular books, uh, but this is her re first real foray into historical nonfiction, and I think she killed it. And it's obviously it was Bill's research and, and and all that stuff that helped. Vicky was really the one who wrote the book, uh, but we talked about just kind of their collaboration and how it worked, and how they wrote such a great great novel. That she's able to then take all that. And we're talking thousands of pages. Of material, newspaper articles, letters, depositions, lots of photos, uh, historical inaccuracies. You know, in the uh, from the newspapers, they used to get the names wrong. So she was able to then just break it apart and start creating this this narrative. I mean, you're looking at this wall behind me that now has a painting on it in my <laughs> living room. That painting wasn't there. And what I started to do is I blew up a picture of every mobster. Well, yeah, like like you're in the FBI, you know, the one of totally <laughs> like spread across this whole wall. My poor family had to eat with like murderers in there for six months. I left it there because then I can say, you know, because he had studied it for so long, he'd say, oh yeah, like uh, the, you know. That's Galbo and that's, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm trying to picture them. So the finally like, now I know them all. And then I put the lawmen on this side and just like really and put the dates and tried to like it was very complicated and it was my first time writing historical uh nonfiction. but it's a little bit harder because my other books were contemporary nonfiction. i could call people and ask them <laughs> and um so so yes the little details that build somebody's life and you really hope that you're getting it right and i don't think intel 
as an author until I feel that, it's not right. That's going to do it for today's episode, guys. Thanks again to, to Vicki and Bill. Super cool of them. Uh, and again, such a fun interview. Go back and listen to our recent podcast we did with, uh, we were on the Land Grant uh, Brewery and their podcast, Beers with the Brewers, uh, last week on Thanksgiving, talking about Columbus brewing history uh, and talking about the history of Franklinton. And really cool podcast. Thanks again to them. Go drink any of their beers are awesome. You'll see them in the stores uh, around Central Ohio and really around the state. One of Columbus's best breweries, LandGrantBrewing.com. Go check them out. Uh, it's the holidays here. We've got our T-shirts that are for sale. We're selling $15 holiday special, free shipping. Uh, again, we've got all sizes. You can go look at our Instagram, Ohio Be the World podcast, uh, to check out some pictures of them. Uh, and again, just email me at ohioviewtheworld at gmail.com and we'll get those out to you in time for, for Christmas and Hanukkah. Uh, again, we want to ask you to rate and review the show, whether it's on iTunes or wherever. You just scroll down. Uh, you can give us whatever review you want, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, those really help us shoot up the ranks and help more people find the show. Uh, it's really one of the best things you can do. You can always share the podcast on your social media with your friends. But rating and reviewing it is the easiest and quickest way to help us. Our next episode, we're actually going to be taking a trip here in the cold Ohio winter. We'll be going to Hawaii. I just got back from the beach working on this episode, Ohio versus Annexation. We'll talk about the United States, questionable to say the least, uh, Annexation of Hawaii in the late 1890s. The role an Ohioan played in that Annexation plot. Uh, really fun episode if you've ever been to Hawaii. Miss Ohio being the world and I went to Maui for our honeymoon in just a, a magical place. And we'll talk about how that became an American territory, uh, for better or for worse, and certainly was, was a, uh, a dubious annexation. That's going to do it for today. Thanks again to our to our uh, our guests, Bill Oldfield and Vicki Bruce. Super cool. And they've written just an amazing book. They've gotten press all over the place for it. Um, sold thousands and thousands of copies. But we need you to buy one and go down to the show notes and get that for yourself for the holidays. Really fascinating read. There's so much more that we couldn't get into today. Um, and really about the history of Italians and Sicilians here in the United States. Um, again, great book. Go buy that. We will see you guys in two weeks for Ohio vs. Annexation. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us, and go Bucks. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.